I think more than almost anything we teach in science or even in school as a whole, climate change is the one thing that students have to brace themselves for. We can see the things that are happening and we can see that if things don't change, we can lose these traditions that we had, essentially our way of life. I'd say that my biggest concern with climate change is just knowing that the world I'm experiencing right now is so much more deteriorated than the world that my parents and my grandparents experienced. I think it's really important to teach youth about climate change at the moment because they're the ones who are going to be stuck with the worst consequences, right? If we don't get our emissions under control, it's not me anymore who's going to have to deal with the real impacts. It's people who are in school right now. Climate change. It's a pretty big topic. Yep. Probably the most pressing scientific, societal, and ethical challenge of our time, I'd say. Agreed. And as we hear more and more about the wildfires, the hurricanes, the record-breaking temperatures, the permafrost melts, the species at risk, the people already on the front lines of climate change, and the millions of climate refugees around the world. Well, climate change isn't just creeping up on us. It's here. And to be clear, it's affecting some of us a lot more than others. Climate change might feel like a black hole of doom and gloom, or like a topic so enormous and depressing, it's probably just best not to bring it up. It can be complicated to talk about climate change. And for teachers and parents, talking about climate change with kids can feel more complicated still. I'm Andrea McGuire, a freelance radio producer and journalist. And I'm Laura Temple, the Environmental Education Coordinator with Conservation Corps Newfoundland and Labrador. In this two-part documentary series, we'll delve into how educators in Newfoundland and Labrador can best teach the subject of climate change. You'll hear from teachers, elders, academics, and youth activists from across the province, along with one amazing climate education expert in Ontario. In part one, we'll focus on the particular dynamics of climate change already happening in the province and what could occur in the future. And in part two, we'll get into specific strategies for teaching climate change in the classroom. Surprisingly, working on this project has actually helped me feel more hopeful than I've ever felt about climate change. We hope that after listening to this series, you'll understand the urgency and importance of teaching about climate change, but also leave feeling inspired too. So Labrador is one of the fastest warming places in Canada and also one of the fastest warming places anywhere in the circumpolar north. This is Dr. Ashley Consolo. I'm the interim dean of the School of Arctic and Subarctic Studies at Memorial University and I'm located in Happy Valley Goose Bay, Labrador. Dr. Consolo has been working with Inuit communities in Nunatsivut and Nunavut for over 10 years. Her research focuses on how climate change and resulting environmental changes are impacting health and well-being. So people who live here, particularly Inuit uh, in the Nunatsivut region of northern Labrador, have really been experiencing climate change for decades. Things that are projected in other parts of the country or other parts of the world as coming in the future, Inuit here have already been living through. And that means that they've been at the front lines of a lot of not only climate changes, but the impacts of climate change for many, many years. So that's something really important because it's not abstract. People are living through it. People have been living with it. And it is causing significant disruptions to lives of people in Newfoundland and Labrador. Climate change is global, but it doesn't affect every place the same way. 
And as Dr. Consolo points out, the rich diversity of Newfoundland and Labrador means the changes are especially varied here. So climate change is very localized. And what's fascinating about our province, which makes us a little different than other provinces in Canada, is that we have such a diversity in climate and geography. So in one province, we have very, very northern regions, and we have an island region in the Atlantic. We have a mainland connection, and we have an island connection. So that means a lot of differences in climate change. And we also have very diverse cultures in Newfoundland and Labrador. And so Labrador, with the Inuit and Innu populations, um, have a very different experience and cultural background than, say, on the island with the Mi'kmaq populations. So, you know, there's a, an incredible and beautiful diversity of this province of peoples and of history, but then also of geography, of climate. I mean, it's, it's a really amazing province that way. So just to remember that there's diversity in our province, there's diversity across the country, and there's diversity around the world in terms of how climate change will be experienced. To learn more about climate science in the province, we turn to Dr. Joel Finnis. I'm Joel Finnis. I am a climatologist by training, and I currently work in Memorial University's geography department. Dr. Finnis says coastal Labrador should be top of mind as a place of urgent climate concern. Coastal Labrador is the real emergency zone for me right now. They've had numerous problems and of course, their entire way of life up there is predicated on reliably cold winters, which again are no longer as reliable as they used to be. So I'd say that's the location where we're seeing big impacts right now, where major red flags are being raised and where we have to think about how to deal with and adapt to those changes right now. Notice how often Dr. Finnis repeats the words right now. It's not just for effect. Time really is of the essence. Already, northern Labrador is warming much faster than the global goal agreed on in the United Nations Paris Agreement. Here's Dr. Consolo again. When you study climate change or you look at international policy, the global goal has been to keep the global average temperature below or at 1.5 degrees average temperature change, sometimes 2 degrees average temperature change. When you look at northern Labrador, there's been an over 3 degree average temperature change already. At this point, the world's experienced an average temperature increase of about 1 degree Celsius. Though the difference between 1 or 2 degrees of global warming might not sound like much, the scientific consensus is that if we reach 3 to 4 degrees of average global warming, the planet will become largely unlivable. So those 1 to 2 to 3 degrees are a big deal. Yep. The goal of keeping average global warming to 1.5 degrees would prevent some of the worst-case climate scenarios from happening. But in the meantime, the ongoing temperature increase in Labrador means people are already experiencing some of the worst impacts of the world's changing climate. And this is causing major changes to the environment. Now there we're seeing, for example, real shifts in reliability of sea ice cover, real shifts in the reliability of snow cover. We're seeing more freeze-thaw cycles, which present some problems in terms of ice formation, getting in the way of caribou's access to lichen in the winter, which means that we're seeing big changes up there in terms of, again, species health, reliable transportation infrastructure for people who use snow or the ice to get from one community to another, as they do in coastal Labrador. Of course, Newfoundland isn't immune to climate change. Even on the island here, again, we're seeing increases in temperature. I'd say that that's on the island, that's less of a concern for us overall than some of the changes that we're seeing in precipitation, though. So the big concern for the island here is that as the climate system warms, 
we're going to expect to see more water dumped on us in big rainfall events. That means higher risk of flooding as a consequence. And in fact, we have seen some very big flooding events in the last 10 years, which are more consistent with a future climate than a past climate. We'd expect to see more of those things again as things continue to warm. By the end of the century, it would not be difficult to imagine us seeing something on the order of a meter of sea level rise. Now, a meter of sea level rise might not sound immense, but when we think about how much coastal infrastructure we have, a meter sea level rise means that that coastal infrastructure is largely going to be lost. It's going to be unusable if we actually end up seeing that much rise. Now, we also see that if we increase sea level, then any storm surge events, any weather-driven increases in relative sea level, just as winds pile up water along the coast, for example, are going to be more severe as well. Think of all the wharves, the fishing stages, the cabins, the houses and communities all by the water. They could get more battered than they've ever been, or maybe they just won't be able to exist at all. And the rainstorms on the island Dr. Finnis mentioned are bound to get more severe and more frequent. When we take a look at the frequency of extreme precipitation events, things that happen very rarely that we'd expect to occur, well, that we'd expect to have a probability of about one in a hundred of occurring every year, become something that have a, a one in 50 chance of occurring, or even in some cases a one in 25 chance of occurring, which means that flooding events become two times to four times as frequent. That presents, again, a real concern in terms of protecting our coasts, protecting our cities, protecting our infrastructure, and maintaining sustainable, resilient communities. Although climate change in Labrador is more stark at the moment, this doesn't mean changes on the island are going unnoticed. I've heard people tell me that there's a lot less reliable snow cover here than there used to be. They can't go skiing as often as they once did. The ponds don't freeze the way that they used to or as reliably as they used to. And all of those are, again, ongoing anecdotal signs of change. talking about changes in weather and climate and the whole purpose is to make sure the roads, buildings, infrastructure is going to be ready for if the coast changes or if the water level increases. Over the last couple of years, Conservation Corps has been holding online workshops about preparing for climate change with communities around the province. Is there anything that sticks out to you guys on this list that you're like, oh yeah, the sea level has really risen. I've noticed that driving on roads that I've always driven on or like it's been super windy. So when you guys say it's been a weird summer, what was weird about this winter and summer? Snow again. Yeah. So way more precipitation snow than normal. Way more than we normally have. The winters used to start earlier. Do you know what I mean? Like we really don't get snow now until January. Whereas like, I remember when I was younger, like you could go like sledding at your grandparents on Christmas day. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? You get snowstorms in November. Well, Jeff's sister was born in a snowstorm and she's born November 1st. Dr. Finnis sees patterns emerging from these anecdotes. I think people will notice this mostly in terms of loss initially, right? I used to be able to do this, now it's gone. It's that loss that I think gets noticed first and most strongly. And along with these human losses, he's also seen shifts in animal behavior. Actually, my dad has been telling me lots of strange things he's noticed with local wildlife over the past 10 years or so. My name is Roland Temple, and I'm from Normanstow, Lockle. This is the same community he was born in in the 1950s. My dad's a retired conservation officer, and he's been hunting, fishing, and berry picking here since he was a kid. 
Des noticed lots of changes in marine animals in recent years. He's seen minke whales show up during a particularly warm December, and he's noticed way more orcas and sharks swimming around than there used to be. He's also noticed a dramatic change in capelin season. Before we finished school back then, we, we finished probably the 21st of June, and uh, we'd have the capelin before we finished school, so you, you could get 17th or 18th even before that. But most years now, you don't see the capelin until up. Oh, late in July, even getting into August sometimes, right? And they've been like that now, you know, for a good while, right? And no matter who you talk to, everyone says the same. A fisherman, everyone see that kind of stuff, right? This past August, something even more unusual happened in the bay. We were down to the garage, of course, something there, and had was doing some work with the truck, so I finished there, and uh, one of the boys were there, and then uh, I was looking out the window, you know, all those birds, like in the sky, right? So he drove down toward the water for a closer look. The bay was a ruckus of activity. A huge group of gannets was circling above the surface. They were diving into the water like torpedoes, catching fish. Oh, it was unreal. Here was the gannets diving. I suppose you can't say they were a million, but they were tens of thousands, right? Like, it just, it was so amazing and... Uh, I've never seen my life like Gantz here. I mean, to be if you saw Gantz here back when we were young, to be very unusual, right? But they're more for a percentage of that. But like you see a few more now, but I have never before seen so many. So whatever happened, I guess there must have been a lot of bait coming in the bay from whether it's Capeton and those small herring or something. But uh, yeah, that was quite amazing. I live in St. John's now, so I wouldn't know about these stories if I didn't hear them from my dad. In rural communities, people are more likely to be aware of these changes. This is something Dr. Consolo has also noticed in Labrador. For people in Labrador, you know, you live so close to the environment. Um, you know, it's it really shapes what you do, how you live. And for many people like um, Inuit and other indigenous populations around the world, that connection to land is thousands of years old. So people's culture really emerged from that long-standing connection to land. Language emerges from it and all facets of what makes you feel strong in your identity and strong in your health. So when we're seeing changes in the environment and in the climate, even subtle alterations can have large impacts on people and how they feel. One person who's definitely feeling these changes is Derek Pottle an Inuk elder, carver, hunter, and cultural advocate living in Rigolet, Labrador. It's important to recognize that on the global climate stage, Derek and many other Indigenous people in Labrador are well-known and highly respected for their work on climate change. I've talked to, you know, different forums and different group gatherings and presentations, and, you know, I've been to Greenland, the four Inuit regions in Nunagak and Inuit Nunagak and you know, talk to many people and from all different age groups. Derek's community, Rigolet, has a population of about 300 people. It's a fly-in community in the winter, no roads in or out. That is, unless you're on snowmobile. I guess in some people's terminology or some way some people describe it, we're isolated and they still call us isolated, but I've never felt isolated. It's, you know, it's the way we live and where we live to, and it's my home. And I still try to stay as much connected to the land as we can, you know, in, in this very challenging times that we deal with. For someone with such deep ties to the land, the changes are easy to see. I mean, even for experienced people, you know, I mean, we started talking and hearing about this 
20, 20 odd years ago, I guess, but you know, it's starting to be more and more noticeable. You know, the three or four things that stand out here the most, what I notice here, being, you know, trying to get out on the land as much as you can, is the severity of the wind. We get really, really hard winds, uh, like we'd never, we would get winds in the late fall and winter time that would be severe, but it's all season now and the water temperature got to be warming up because uh, even when it gets cold, the ice don't make like hard ice anymore. It's like more like a slush, uh, very soft ice. And as soon as the air temperature and the water temperature warm up, it starts to melt out really fast. And we don't see big rafters of ice and thick hard ice anymore. And you know, you go long periods of time and you get just down flat, down foggy weather for a couple of weeks at a time, or then you get extreme heat for a long period of time. So it's very noticeable, the changes that we're seeing. In January of this year, just before we spoke to Derek, there was a terrible ice storm in Rigolet. Multiple days of freezing rain layered to form up to four inches of ice on the trees. Telephone poles snapped, trees keeled over, and some people were calling it ice again. And as Derek pointed out, storms like this hurt animals too. You know, when you're connected, not only for humans, I mean, this is impacting animals and mammals. Uh, right now, we've got the land is just glazed over with ice. Uh, we had two or three days of freezing rain. Uh, the trees, I mean, my God, uh, thousands of trees that's just like hanging and almost touching the ground with the weight of the ice onto them and uh you know the animals that feed off of the land like partridges and arctic hares and caribou and uh moose and animals like that there's no way they can get their feed uh, not upon the high land then moose i mean moose can't travel we didn't used to harvest moose but now we don't have caribou uh we harvest moose and uh moose can't travel around they can't move around with this uh, sharp crusty ice on the stove cuts their legs up and they just can't travel around Young people in New Nazivut are also witnessing dramatic changes. My name is Angelica Vincent. I am a 20-year-old Inuk from Hopdale and Savut, and I am currently living in St. John's. The one where I always reference is polar bears are not supposed to be up around, like, Hopdale is too far down for where polar bears are normally supposed to be situated, and, and there has been a lot, as of recent years, probably starting, like, late 20, early 2010s, there were polar bears coming down. And one even came into town one time because it was starving and it had no other thing to go to and it came into town and it had to be put down because it was unsafe for the people. But it said that it had to go to that length of coming into town because it didn't have any food and didn't have anywhere else to go. Angelica's also noticed changes in the ice. When she went home for Christmas this year, Angelica thought she'd cross the harbor for church on Christmas Eve, just like she always has. There's a long road along the harbor, but like, during the winters, people usually just cross across the harbor because it's a lot easier than going on the road because of the snow. <laughs> but this year, crossing the harbor was impossible. The harbor would usually freeze over and you'd be able to cross it. But this year, no one could go on the ice during that time because it wasn't completely safe. Ice safety in Labrador is becoming more and more erratic and unpredictable. Since sea ice basically provides the main winter roadway for many communities, these changes are a huge problem. Dr. Consolo told us more about the many repercussions of thinning sea ice. So people are finding it more difficult to predict the weather when they travel on the land, particularly in the winter. So, you know, making sure that the, the ice is safe, that the conditions won't change, that storms won't come up suddenly, that people won't um, get in dangerous situations. So not only is there less ice, 
It's actually forming weeks later um, in the fall and breaking up weeks later in the spring. So this is giving people significantly less time on the ice to travel safely or to go to other communities or to hunt um, or to trap, to do things that are important to their culture and also to their, their food security and their well-being. In southern Canada, people often try to avoid cold weather. But in the north, winter is many people's favorite time of year. I mean, the lack of cold weather, I mean, you know, people who don't know cold weather get kind of, they don't understand it. But I mean, for us, it's a part of life. Cold weather is a very, very important part of our life and the lifestyle that we live. So being able to have that, uh, honestly, it scares me that I see this temperature and how long the ice is taking the form and how fast is melting out and all the other conditions that we're seeing, it scares me. The fear, anxiety, and emotional side of climate change is a focal point of Dr. Consolo's research. She's been interviewed by journalists around the world for her work on ecological grief. Well, you know, the concept of ecological grief for me actually really emerged working with Inuit and Labrador where people were talking about this and talking about their their sadness related to environmental change and related to not only the shifts in the environment, but also what it meant for them, for their families, for future generations, for being Inuit. So some of the things that are coming from this and coming from these changing land connections are a lot of strong emotional reactions. So people talk about feeling really sad, frustrated, stressed, anxious, angry, you know, and, and just kind of this, this frustration with these things that are happening from external sources that are impacting their lives. And then people also talk about more serious things like anxiety that's longer term or depression and distress and things like grief. So something that we call ecological grief. So the grief that's connected to environmental change or losing something in the environment that's important to you or, you know, a species loss or some sort of environmental change. Angelica Vincent is one person grappling with the emotional weight of climate change. We can see the things that are happening and we can see that if things don't change, that we can lose these traditions that we had, essentially our way of life. I don't even know how to describe it, honestly. Like, just thinking about it, I can just feel like my heart drop. I can't even describe it. I'm sorry. I'm like, less for words. <laughs> it would be pretty drastic. It would be pretty bad. Just thinking about, like, in the future, if and when I do have kids or, like, my grandkids, if the climate crisis continues, they might not be able to do things that I was able to do or my parents or grandparents, which is really sad. Angelica told us that as a young Inuk, she's already lost many of her traditions because of colonization and cultural assimilation. We've lost a lot of our cultures. We're trying to mostly reclaim it. In this context, going out on the land becomes even more precious. It's one of the longest-standing traditions for Indigenous groups in Labrador. But now, these traditions are vulnerable too. I feel like my culture is definitely threatened and endangered by climate change because of the fact that one of the only things we have left is going off on the land because we lost our culture, we lost a lot of our traditions. So for a lot of people, being out on the land is so much a part of being mentally well and so much what helps mental wellness. And if that's taken away, there's a loss to mental health. And connected with that, there's a loss to identity and culture. And then we've had a number of people talk about um, worrying about some of the other things that connect to mental health. So 
whether it's physical health, whether there's increased um, injury or potential death on the land from changing environmental conditions, to things like people having more more empty time where they're not out on the land and they're in the community, and um, you know potential increases in addictions, so drug and alcohol usage, and a lack of opportunity for things that support mental health. And so people are really grappling with these climate changes on so many different fronts. The physical, ecological changes, the mental and emotional effects, the impacts on health and food security and family and culture and identity. The climate's going to continue changing. We can't just stop it. But our approach now will determine if we end up with runaway climate change basically the worst possible climate change scenario, or a more manageable amount of climate change. Here's Dr. Finnis again. So the idea that we have a few years to get our climate change emissions under control is basically comes back to the fact that if we keep adding to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere the way we have been adding, then we are getting dangerously close to hitting a threshold where we believe a lot of positive feedback mechanisms could kick in. Positive feedback mechanisms, or tipping points, could cause sudden, irreversible changes. Scientists are concerned about multiple tipping points that could fundamentally alter the climate. One of these tipping points, for instance, is the runaway loss of Arctic sea ice. In the case of the greenhouse gas effect, we think about, say, for example, reducing the amount of ice on the planet. Dr. Finnis told us that when we lose the planet's ice, we're also losing a vast reflective surface. This means that when sunlight hits the open water and land once covered by that ice, it's absorbed much more than it was before. And these new absorbent surfaces, in turn, heat the planet even further. Scientists are sounding the alarm about other positive feedback mechanisms too. All these tipping points could have more greenhouse gases on top of the ones humans are already creating. Things like methane from uh, melting permafrost peat bogs and ensuing decay of that plant material in those peat bogs would release a whole pile of methane into the atmosphere. You also see that as we're melting cold water regions, more methane trapped in that water is escaping into the atmosphere. And if we end up tapping into those positive feedback mechanisms, we might get what we think of as a runaway climate change. The climate is just locked in a trajectory to something much, much warmer and there's really nothing that human activity can then do to prevent it. If, on the other hand, in the next 10 years, we manage to get our emission levels down to a suitably low level, we should be able to avoid hitting those temperature targets that would create those positive feedback mechanisms. And I feel strongly like we've been warned about this again and again and again <laughs> over the course of my career so far, and yet we have failed to actually step up and do anything of substance. And we've left it to a point now where we're rushing to get our emissions under control with a really short timeline and even bigger consequences if we don't. So we've been delaying so long now that we're stuck doing more expensive and risky things than we would otherwise. To avoid these dangerous tipping points, the world has to take action on climate change fast. If we want the more manageable average global warming of 1.5 degrees, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says drastic measures are required. According to the IPCC, the planet needs to cut carbon emissions by at least 49% of our 2017 levels by 2030. 
and then achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. Dr. Angela Carter is someone from the island who's done extensive research on Canada's carbon emissions. She recently published a book called Fossilized, Environmental Policy in Canada's Petro-Provinces, and teaches political science at the University of Waterloo. Dr. Carter also has family members who have worked in the oil industry. I think this is kind of the story for many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Like, we all know somebody who's had to go to Alberta. We've become such an oil-based society in many ways. Like, culturally, it's really marked us. In her book, Dr. Carter refers to Newfoundland and Labrador as a petro-province. Yeah, Newfoundland is definitely a petro-province because we have drawn so much of our wealth, or revenue really is the more accurate way to put it. We've drawn so much of our revenue from oil development. At this point, Dr. Carter says the science is more than clear. If we want to avoid catastrophic levels of climate change, the planet must reduce oil production. We know, based on the science, that much of the oil that we already know exists, we can't extract it because it would send us well above what is considered having any chance at a stable climate for the people who are coming after us. So there is an imperative that is scientifically just cut and dry here. There is a global carbon budget that if we blow past it, we're in very dangerous territory. And so everybody, all oil-producing governments around the world, the requirement is that we start ratcheting down to get to zero by 2050. And along with the ecological and ethical reasons for reducing oil production, Dr. Carter said oil is just becoming less economically viable. We're in the midst of a tectonic shift in how mainstream conservative economic actors are thinking about oil. And they're turning away from oil, yes, because of climate risk, but also because of huge technological shifts. We could say that one of these mainstream economic actors is the U.S. government. Since Joe Biden became president, his team has canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, paused oil and natural gas leases on public lands, and eliminated fossil fuel subsidies, among other things. Biden's also replacing the U.S. government's fleet of vehicles with electric vehicles and wants the U.S. to reach 100% clean electricity by 2035. Basically, you know, the cost of renewable energy is dropping and the potential for like storage batteries is growing exponentially. So we're at this very cool turning point in the history of like human energy systems where we're moving from fossil fuel based energy systems to renewable ones. Still, it can be hard to talk about changing or downsizing the oil industry in this province knowing that people's jobs and livelihoods are at stake. Often, I don't know, it can feel like, well, we're on the side of not caring about people's jobs and not caring about Newfoundland and Newfoundlanders, and like that is so far from the truth. This is Sarah Dumphy, a youth activist with Fridays for Future in St. John's. Fridays for Future is the international climate movement founded by Greta Thunberg. While their group has received a lot of local support for their climate activism, they've also received some backlash. I understand why, you know, if we're yelling, no more coal, no more oil, keep our carbon in the soil. And then, you know, people hearing that and being like, okay, so you really aren't a fan of what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. But she thinks it's a mistake to think of climate activists and oil workers as being diametrically opposed. Sarah wants solutions that take care of both people working in the oil industry and the climate. So what I've been trying to do personally is framing it as like a this is not just an environmental standpoint, like this is long-term preparation, like oil is a finite resource. 
You need to have a backup plan. You know, yes, we might want things on different timelines, but I think that it's not unrealistic to have a plan, a post-oil plan, regardless of if you're for or against the oil industry. I think that that is just kind of responsible. Dr. Carter also sees the necessity of a post-oil plan and agrees that any plan has to include taking care of oil workers. As it stands, she sees two different paths the province could go down when it comes to fossil fuels. We've got two options. And one is that we start managing a decline. And we do it in a careful way, taking care of workers that would have been impacted. We can do it that way. Or there will come a time when there is a crash of the industry and we will be left with a terrible economic and social mess. And that, I think, is a really depressing idea, especially because, you know, with the Cod Moratorium, we saw this before, you know, what the end of an industry that we relied on to such a great degree, we saw what that looked like when almost at like the turn of a dime, we just couldn't continue down that road anymore. So I feel like we know better, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so I'm really hoping that, yeah, we can look at the evidence and then start doing that, you know, managed and careful phase out the sunsetting where we take care of people along the way, rather than waiting for the inevitable. This idea of supporting workers while they transition between industries isn't a new one. Similar strategies were used to support returning soldiers at the end of World War II. Now, this idea is anchoring the movement for a just transition away from fossil fuels. It's not about blaming oil workers for having to work in oil. And it's not about leaving them to their own devices. What it is about is saying, okay, look, we've got a problem for Newfoundland and Labrador, We need everybody at the table to be able to solve this problem, working together. And uh, if we can raise the issue of the climate crisis and our need to act in that way, I think that's honest and I think it's powerful. Climate change isn't just an environmental phenomenon. Because our world is rooted in unjust relations and because the world is warming at very different rates, Some people are much more vulnerable to climate change than others. Here's Dr. Consolo. So often the people who are most affected by climate change all over the world, so, you know, it could be from a heat wave, it could be from drought, it could be from sea level rise, it could be from hurricanes, you know, whatever the climate change event is, the people who are most affected by it generally tend to be people who have been marginalized by political and economic structures Um, people who are in very low socioeconomic categories, and often women, children, and the elderly, and diverse peoples of color. So it's, you know, there's climate change, and then there's also the layers of social justice and equity, of politics, and of just the economic distribution of wealth around the world. The phrase climate justice is used to acknowledge these inequities and connect climate change with social justice movements. Power is always part of the equation. And as Dr. Finnis pointed out, it can be helpful to disentangle cause and effect when it comes to climate justice. I mean, who's producing the problem? Who's benefiting from the consumption of fossil fuels? And who's stuck dealing with the consequences? So let's pull that apart. Who's producing the problem? And who's benefiting from fossil fuel consumption? To answer these questions, let's turn again to Dr. Carter. 70% of emissions have come from oil and gas and coal companies, right? So to say we, in some ways, like we cause this, that in some ways lets them off the hook. Dr. Carter is referencing the Carbon Majors Report from 2017, which traced back 71% of all global emissions to just 100 fossil fuel companies. So basically, turning down your thermostat can only go so far in light of statistics like that. 
Now for the last part of Dr. Finnis's question. Who sucked dealing with the consequences? Well, like Dr. Consolo said earlier, it tends to be people who are marginalized in various ways. And in our province, the people most affected by climate change are indigenous groups in Labrador. Here's Dr. Finnis again. It's a small population, so you can't really say that they produced the issue. Also a population that's often very based around living on smaller scales, uh, subsistence hunting, etc., living off the land, very removed from the industrial economy that is driving climate change. But they're stuck dealing with the biggest consequences and the earliest consequences, which is, it gets back to all kinds of questions and discussions about climate justice, right? There's geographical considerations there. There's economic considerations there. But there's also time considerations. It's the future that is paying for this, ultimately. So thinking about future generations is a key part of climate justice, too. And teens and young adults, including Angelica Vincent, are already feeling the weight of this burden. We as students and young people should not have to worry about our futures because it's being ruined by these people with all this money. Like, we should not have that weight on our shoulders of trying to make sure that the world is going to be around for a while and for our kids or for our grandchildren. We should not have that responsibility. Dr. Carter agrees that young people shouldn't be sacked with that responsibility either. It is wrong for any generation to say, like, we've created this problem and you've got to solve it. Yet. She also sees the power young people have to affect change. Young people, if they can apply the kind of pressure on us, you know, people who are now in a position to make change and hold on to that commitment to action as they grow up, that is extremely powerful. And I think that to live a life of despair about the climate crisis, we become immobilized And that becomes a really kind of dark and shallow life. But there's an option there, which is to say, okay, yes, things are very difficult, but I am choosing to have hope that we can change. And I am willing to work with others to make that change. And I think what we find, and I, like, I've experienced this in my own life, and I I see it in the students that I get to teach at the, the university, or I get to work with at the university level, that there's something really magical, actually, that can happen right at that point of being, you know, I am scared, I feel despair, but I'm not going to give up, and I'm going to work with other people to try to make the change that I can. Suddenly, um, that's really empowering. It's really fulfilling in terms of individual lives. Like, as soon as people realize, oh, wow, I can go out and I can work with other people, and I can create this change... That adds a dimension to our lives of connection, a reason for being, that I think many of us slack in our lives. This brings us to our next goal in this series, how to teach kids and youth about climate change. And as we've learned through all our interviews, moving through the darkness of climate change towards realistic hope and solutions is critical for teaching climate change too. The good news is there are lots of solutions. Conversations are shifting, technologies are evolving, and lots of amazing people are working towards a hopeful future, both in this province and around the world. And there are tons of exciting ideas for teaching about climate change too. We'll dive into those ideas in part two of this series. We'll hear from more teachers, youth, elders, and climate change experts about specific approaches and strategies for teaching climate change. We hope you'll join us. It's going to be great. A huge thanks to everyone we spoke with for part one, Dr. Ashley Consolo, Dr. Joel Finnis, Angelica Vincent, 
Derek Pottle, Dr. Angela Carter, Sarah Dumphy, and Roland Temple. We should all work together. You know, I know that not everybody can speak up or willing to speak up, but we definitely got to work together. Academics, traditional values, youth, everybody that can add. So at the end of the day, Lord Jesus, we all live here. I mean, we got to take care of the earth and the planet to the best that we can.